first section of the aeroplane in war by claude graham white and harry harper this librivox recording is in the public domain review of progress prior to the first military tests of aeroplanes one dawn of flight encouragement in europe and america england's lost opportunities the pioneers in order to pave the way for a description of what the war aeroplane as we know it to-day can accomplish it is necessary to trace although only briefly the development of the heavier-than-air machine during recent years one fact immediately claims the attention of any student of this question he sees that england might to-day had she not shown initial apathy be the first nation in the world in the fostering and development of aerial navigation instead of holding such a proud position however and any nation may well be proud of having encouraged this new art we suffer for having displayed a lack of interest in the conquest of the air and for having given practically no help to far-seeing enthusiasts who first devoted themselves to the great problem there was no lack of pioneers in england but instead of giving them assistance we discouraged them with the result that such countries as france and germany wide awake to all forms of progress have moved forward from one triumph to another more than a hundred years ago for instance england had an opportunity of displaying a definite interest in flying sir george cayley a remarkably clever engineer turned his attention to the design of a flying machine and actually produced in the year eighteen o nine plans of a machine which anticipated many constructional features of the monoplane as it is built to-day of course there was not in those days any such efficient motive power as is now supplied by the petrol engine but sir george cayley lectured upon his ideas and sought to interest people in them had his deductions been greeted with enthusiasm it is not probable that any successful flying machine would immediately have been produced the difficulty of finding a reliable propelling medium would have prevented this but what a ready and encouraging acceptance of sir george cayley's pioneer work would inevitably have done would have been to turn the minds of other inventors towards the problem and so pave the way for a series of discoveries each more important than its predecessor the imaginations of those who might have exercised a great influence upon future progress were not fired however and the same remark applies to the efforts of those who followed in sir george cayley's footsteps and endeavoured to give his ideas more practical shape 
stringfellow and hansen for example pored over the great engineer's drawings and produced working models of a flying machine their apparatus was crude it is true but this toil represented so many steps forward along the path of progress it had been man's ambition for centuries to fly success could not be expected without infinite labor nothing definite came of the work of these pioneers however they had little encouragement they were regarded as cranks the importance of the work they were engaged upon was not indeed realized now as a striking contrast let us turn to the reception which early enthusiasts received in other countries let us take france for example Ader, an electrical engineer devised in eighteen ninety six a very ingenious bat-like aeroplane with it having fitted a small steam engine he actually achieved a short flight or rather a brief hop from the ground instead of being greeted apathetically or having his sanity doubted ader was promptly called to appear before the military authorities they after hearing his theories expounded cheerfully voted him twenty thousand pounds in order that he might continue his experiments upon an adequate scale thus even at this early stage france revealed her keen interest in aerial navigation ader lacking the petrol motor could not carry his investigations much further but the encouragement he received gave heart to other inventors and so france went forward to success america offers another example of a sane far-seeing policy professor langley an eminent scientist was making a series of wonderfully interesting model aeroplanes at about the time ader was experimenting in france to further his work the american authorities very promptly came forward with a grant of ten thousand pounds he like ader was unable to carry his individual experiments to a successful issue but further investigation on the part of other workers was greatly stimulated it is interesting to note what position these two countries which first encouraged flying afterwards took when the aeroplane became a reality to america in the work of the wright brothers has gone the honor of the first practical flights with a heavier than air machine while france is to-day the premier nation in the world in the development of airmanship thus it is legitimate to pass to a consideration of the first machines that flew and consider their capabilities from the military point of view the right biplane naturally is the first to attract attention because it was as long ago as nineteen o three that these two quiet determined americans made their first successful flights 
from a military aspect this aeroplane had many drawbacks and to cite them is instructive seeing that by this means a reader will be better able to judge later on what vast strides towards perfection the aeroplane has already made the first right biplane would indeed just lie that was all its pilot only dared to leave the ground when an absolutely dead calm prevailed he feared the overturning influence of even the smallest gust of wind his engine being then a novelty as applied to the aeroplane required the most patient tuning up before even a brief flight could be essayed and when it was aloft the machine only passed through the air quite close to the ground each flight had to be started by sliding the aeroplane forward along a rail away from this rail the machine was helpless from the point of view of a military expert indeed this early machine could have been condemned upon several counts it was unreliable it could not fly in gusty winds it was not portable it could only take the air when launched from its rail but the true expert is far-seeing he makes light of present imperfections if in any idea he can see future developments of undoubted importance such an expert for instance was the late captain ferber of the french army he was the first military officer to whom the task fell of reporting for his government upon the capabilities of a military aeroplane representations were made by the wright brothers to the french government in the year nineteen o five two years after their first flights they had improved their machine considerably they were now ready to carry a passenger and they wished to sell their secret so captain ferber was instructed to go to america and investigate their claims the wrights were anxious to sell their secret for a lump sum of money they had begun their experiments in the humblest possible way being small cycle makers at dayton ohio and they were unable to protect by patents the machine which they had evolved by so vast an amount of patient work thus they sought to enter into negotiations with some government they asked for a guarantee that their machine would be bought for a certain price were it to perform a series of stipulated flights their position was as a matter of fact a somewhat awkward one even a brief examination of their aeroplane by an expert would have revealed its principle in this quandary they were led to approach the french government they chose france for a very good reason already as has been indicated this country was keenly alive to the possibilities of flying the two brothers imagined therefore that they would be able to make their best bargain with the french government the practical interest which the french authorities took in the question of military flying was evidenced by their action when they received a communication 
from the wright brothers although reports of the wright's experiments had been greeted in europe with great scepticism and there was reason in view of the failure of other inventors to doubt their claims the french government at once detailed captain ferber to make the long journey to ohio so as to go into the matter in a business-like way captain ferber who was one of the first officers in france to become actively interested in airmanship duly visited america and interviewed the wright brothers they could not show him their machine had they done so their secret would have been revealed regarding the flights which they had made up to this time captain ferber had to rely for testimony upon the statements of certain responsible men living in dayton who had witnessed them the position so far as he was concerned was rather an unsatisfactory one it was like buying a pig in a poke but this officer being a student of character and an enthusiast regarding flight saw what manner of men these two brothers were he did not doubt their word nor the statements of those who had seen them fly so when he returned to france he recommended his government to enter into negotiations with the rights and buy their invention before any other nation took steps to secure it it was a tribute to his foresight that he should have done this but for the time being the negotiations fell through the rights for one thing wanted a very considerable sum of money and there was difficulty also in arranging what the series of tests of their aeroplane should be thus it was that after many communications had passed between the interested parties the matter stood in abeyance in the meantime however other inventors were striving with the great problem in france in nineteen o six santos dumont effected hops with a machine like an exaggerated box kite and this led the way to the remarkable achievements of two particularly clever brothers charles and gabriel voisin they busied themselves with a biplane which at the end of nineteen o seven they asked henry farman a well-known racing motorist to test for them this led to the first famous flights of the voisin machine at the military parade ground of ici les moulineaux outside paris france went wild with enthusiasm when this big clumsy machine piloted by the quick agile farman succeeded in flying for a mile and in making a turn while in the air the voisin aeroplane needed to run along the ground for quite a hundred yards before it could gain sufficient support from the air to enable it to rise when it did so it was only just able to skim along above the ground compared with present-day aeroplanes it was an unwieldy unsatisfactory machine and to make matters worse its motor became overheated after only a minute or so's running as a machine for military purposes it would have been useless but it represented a definite stage in the progress of aeroplaning from this machine of the voisin brothers which farman first flew developed the great school of biplane construction in france also 
experimenting in france at the same time as the voisin brothers was another great master of flight m louis blériot his methods were original he pinned his faith to the monoplane two first practical flights the wright brothers the voisin farman the cross channel flight hastening our review in order to reach matters of more definite interest from the military point of view we find that in nineteen o eight the wright brothers made aerial history by a series of magnificent flights which were however unfortunately marred by a tragedy coming to france wilbur wright flew for a couple of hours without descending at le mans at about the same time in america orville wright was carrying out a series of demonstrations before the military authorities he achieved remarkable success particularly from a war point of view by carrying a passenger in his machine for quite a long flight then when taking up lieutenant selfridge of the american army he met with disaster one of the propellers of his machine broke it crashed to the ground from a height of about one hundred feet lieutenant selfridge was killed being the first victim of the aeroplane and orville wright broke his thigh the accident as may be imagined cast a gloom over flying in america for a long time longer flights by henry farman on an improved voisin biplane were also to be noted in the year nineteen o eight and thus the way is cleared for a description of the wonders achieved in nineteen o nine when it may be said that the importance of the aeroplane from a military point of view was first demonstrated and the attention of nations seriously directed towards the possibilities of this new arm early in the summer of nineteen o nine after innumerable disappointments and the breaking up of many experimental machines Blériot began to achieve success with a simply constructed monoplane driven by an equally simple three-cylinder petrol motor and at the same time another french monoplane the antoinette larger than Blériot's, and having an eight-cylinder motor developing sixty horsepower was also flying surprisingly well it was in july nineteen o nine that these two machines representing a distinct type when compared with the biplane were brought down to the french coast at calais with the intention of invading england by air and winning a prize of one thousand pounds offered by the daily mail piloting his small monoplane was m Blériot himself while the antoinette was flown by mr hubert latham an airman already famed for his daring the method of Blériot's arrival at calais gave promise of the eventual utility of his machine from the military point of view the two wings of his monoplane could easily be detached they were then folded on either side of the body of the machine and thus dismantled it could be placed for transport upon an ordinary railway truck in this fashion it reached calais greatly to the surprise of those who had hitherto only been familiar with the huge cases needed for the transport of biplanes when taken from the railway van the monoplane was tied with ropes behind a motor-car and ran upon its own pneumatic tired wheels to the shelter prepared for it near the sand-hills of les barraques 
a mile or so from calais bleriot as history records won the one thousand pound prize by flying across the channel from france to england just after the dawn on twenty fifth july nineteen o nine he landed near dover castle after a flight of thirty-seven minutes latham unfortunate with his engine made two attempts at the crossing but fell into the sea on both occasions bleriot's feat made a deep impression upon all thoughtful men and particularly upon the military authorities in france if such a flight could be achieved with a small crude machine what might not be possible with a perfected apparatus this naturally was the question which was asked in the next important demonstration of the possibilities of flight which was made at the Rhin flying meeting held in august nineteen o nine the french government took a very active interest they sent special representatives to this meeting the first of its kind to study the various types of flying machines which took part in the contests organized as a further instance of the practical ideas already being displayed by military men in france it may be mentioned that one of the competitors at this memorable flying meeting was the french officer whose work has previously been mentioned captain ferber he flew a voisin biplane it was not unfortunately very long after the rhin meeting that this enthusiastic military airman met with his death at bologna his loss being sincerely mourned by the french government his biplane overturned in a ditch and he was killed by the heavy motor which was torn from its bed and fell upon him three aeroplanes at ram nineteen o nine wright voisin farman bleriot antoinette the gnome engine first military orders seeing that the ram meeting of nineteen o nine was the first occasion upon which a definite military inspection of aeroplanes was made it should be interesting to describe the machines which were then available let us take for example the wright biplane of which we have previously spoken this machine as piloted at Rheims by lefebvre de sandier and the comte de lambert undoubtedly proved itself one of the best all-round machines then in existence the aeroplane represented the usual biplane form of building having one sustaining plane fixed above another the two being held apart by wooden struts made taut by cross wiring in front of these main planes upon outriggers was a small double plane elevator at the rear of the main planes also carried upon outriggers was a double plane vertical rudder the engine of the machine sat upon a wooden bed on the lower plane actuated two wooden propellers which driven by chains revolved in opposite directions behind the main planes the pilot's seat was on the front edge of the lower main plane and his control of the aeroplane when in flight was effected by means of two levers one moved forward and backward actuated the elevating planes and the other was given a dual motion moved to and fro it operated the rudder of the aeroplane shifted from side to side it warped the rear extremities of the main planes and so controlled the lateral stability of the aeroplane 
this wing warping mechanism was as a matter of fact one of the salient features of the wright biplane the system is considered to be the most efficacious method of combating the effect of wind gusts when an aeroplane is in flight in operation this wing warping device was simple when the airman discovered that his machine was tilting over one side owing to a sudden inequality in wind pressure he quickly warped down the plane ends on the side of the biplane that was depressed the result was that there was increased wind pressure under the plane ends warped down thus tending to force the machine back again upon an even keel the pilot who distinguished himself greatly at rhin when flying the right biplane was lefebvre but this daring airman was unfortunately killed shortly afterwards at juvisy when testing a new machine at rhin he circled in the air and effected sharp turns in an altogether remarkable way demonstrating an absolutely complete control over his machine so impressed were the representatives of the french government by the performance of the right biplane that they ordered several machines for military use this represented their first definite order for aeroplanes for war purposes the chief drawback of the right biplane in comparison with other machines flown at this time was that it needed to make a start into the air from a launching rail as has previously been mentioned the advantage of this system of starting in which a weight dropped from a derrick gave the aeroplane its initial impetus along the rail was that the machine could be fitted with a lower powered engine but the disadvantages were obvious were an involuntary descent made at a point some distance away from the machine's rail it had to be carted back to the starting point or a rail and derrick brought to the place where it lay however the french government did not regard any aeroplanes at this time as representing serviceable war weapons they took the wise view that they were purely instructional craft upon which military airmen could gain experience and so fit themselves for the use of the more perfect machines which were likely to be evolved as time went on after describing the right biplane we may now consider the voisin machine this aeroplane represented an improvement upon the type first piloted by farman at isi les moulineaux it had two main supporting planes like those of the right biplane fitted one above another in front of the main planes was a single horizontal elevating plane at the rear of the biplane was a large cellular stabilizing tail made up of horizontal and vertical planes and resembling a box kite in the centre of this cellular tail was the rudder a single vertical plane instead of adopting a wing warping device for maintaining lateral stability the voisin rudders fitted vertical planes or curtains as they were called between their main planes these when the machine was in flight resisted any sideway roll and in conjunction with the movements of the rudder gave the aeroplane a certain amount of automatic stability the biplane rested upon a chassis made of hollow metal tubing it had pneumatic 
tired bicycle wheels mounted in connection with heavy springs to resist the shock of landing after a flight small wheels bore the weight of the tail when the aeroplane was running along the ground an engine of sixty horsepower fitted upon the lower plane drove a two-bladed metal propeller placed behind the main planes the pilot seated midway between the planes operated a wheel like that of a motor-car he pushed it away from him or drew it back to operate the elevating plane and turned it sideways to actuate the rudder this machine had the advantage over the right biplane that it was not dependent upon a starting rail but in general comparison with the right machine it was heavy and sluggish it required a long run before it would lift into the air and its engine power although twice that of the right biplane was only just sufficient to make it fly in a side wind owing to the influence which the gusts exerted upon the vertical panels which were fitted between the main planes it made an appreciable amount of leeway which rendered steering difficult altogether regarded from the point of view of experts to-day it was a heavy awkward machine but it flew and flew steadily and anything that flew in the year nineteen o nine represented a triumph several famous airmen were piloting the voisin biplane at the rhin meeting notably m louis Paulhan and m rogier from a military aspect the voisin biplane had many drawbacks it was not at all portable it could not rise quickly it was slow flying but with the very laudable intention of encouraging such ardent pioneers as the voisin brothers the french government gave orders for certain military machines of this type now we may turn to what was undoubtedly the most successful biplane at the great rhin carnival that designed and flown by mr henry farman this famous airman had it will be remembered first learned to fly upon a voisin biplane after piloting this machine in nineteen o eight he turned his attention early in nineteen o nine to the design of a biplane which should be lighter and more efficient in this endeavour he certainly succeeded the biplane which he first flew in public at the rhin meeting represented a distinct step forward in the development of this type of machine in general construction it was lighter than the voisin machine and it had other excellent features as well instead of the heavy cellular tail as fitted to the voisin biplane it had a lightly constructed tail made of, of two horizontal planes with a vertical rudder fitted between them in front of the main planes upon light wooden outriggers was placed the horizontal elevating plane one of the features of this machine was its method of obtaining lateral stability farman recognized the disadvantages of the vertical planes as used in the voisin machine so he fitted small flaps or horizontal planes at the rear extremities of his main planes these were hinged to the main planes and were termed ailerons their operation produced the same result as in the application of the wing warping device of the wright brothers when the biplane tilted sideways in flight the ailerons were drawn down by means of controlling wires on the side that was depressed the air pressure acting upon the surfaces of the ailerons forced the aeroplane back upon an even keel when not in operation the ailerons 
flew out straight in the wind on a level with the main planes the control of the farm and biplane was effected by means of a hand and foot lever the hand lever when moved forward or backward operated the elevating plane when shifted from side to side it actuated the aileron the pilot's feet rested upon a pivoted bar which he swung from side to side to move the rudder of the machine another constructional feature of this first farman biplane was notable this was the landing chassis appreciating the disadvantages of the right launching rail and recognizing that the voisin chassis was heavy farman aimed at something lighter and at the same time more efficient again he succeeded he devised a chassis which was a combination of wooden skids and bicycle wheels below his biplane upon wooden uprights were fitted two long wooden skids on either side of each skid were two little pneumatic tired bicycle wheels connected by a short axle the wheels were held in position on the skid by stout rubber bands which passed over the axle normally the skids were raised off the ground by the wheels upon which the biplane actually ran but in the case of a rather abrupt descent the chassis was so designed that the wheels were forced up against their rubber bands thus allowing the skids of the machine to come into contact with the ground then when the force of the shock had been absorbed the wheels came into play again with this biplane farman achieved fine flights at Rhin. apart from its constructional excellence the biplane was fitted with a motor which was destined to have a remarkable influence upon the development of flying and upon military aviation in particular this was the seven-cylinder revolving gnome to-day the application of this wonderful engine is practically universal in august nineteen o nine it was regarded quite as a freak and was seen for the first time upon henry farman's biplane up to the time when this motor was introduced makers had in designing aeroplane engines followed very largely upon motor-car design constructing motors with fixed cylinders either upright or in v shape and with their parts lightened wherever possible some were water-cooled others air-cooled but with both systems and particularly with the latter the tendency owing to the high speeds at which the engines had to turn was to overheat and either lose power or stop altogether the specially lightened water-cooling systems which were devised gave a great deal of trouble and in the case of air-cooled engines it was usually found almost impossible to prevent overheating after the engines had been running for ten minutes or a quarter of an hour in the case of the gnome the designer struck out in a new line instead of making his cylinders fixed and his crankshaft revolving as was the method with other engines he set his seven cylinders revolving around the crankshaft petrol and oil he fed to the cylinders by way of the stationary hollow crank shaft the internal complications of this engine in the opinion of experts who first saw it were such that it could not be expected to achieve reliability but it did nevertheless and it ran so well in fact that at the rhin meeting henry farman remained in the air while using it for more than three hours and won the prize for the longest flight the advantages of this remarkable engine proved to be many in the first instance its method of construction enabled it to be built remarkably light and the fact that the seven cylinders revolved generally at a speed of one thousand revolutions in a minute 
effectually disposed of cooling difficulties in fact the engine automatically cooled itself and its flywheel effect as it flew round gave a smooth even thrust to the propeller from the very day of its first introduction the gnome mortar gained overwhelming success it represented a piece of mechanism made especially for the work in hand and not a motor-car engine adapted to aerial purposes this fact was the secret of its success as rapidly as they could acquire them other aeroplane makers fitted gnomes to their machines it proved all-conquering fixed-cylinder engines did not languish completely however some of them were steadily improved and performed reliable work but the gnome was then as is now regarded as the aeroplane engine the farman biplane being so good a machine in itself and being equipped in addition with so excellent a motor naturally aroused keen military interest and it was not long before the inventor received government orders for his machine at this time before the monoplane had assumed the commanding position which it now holds the farman biplane certainly represented the premier aeroplane of the day two more machines which were flown at the first carnival of flight at rheims merit careful description these were the blériot and antoinette monoplanes blériot's machine of the type upon which he crossed the channel was especially interesting its simplicity was as has been stated its great recommendation upon either side of a tubular body built up of light woodwork and partly covered in with fabric were the two supporting planes outstretched like the wings of a bird and supported by wires above and below in the front of the body was the engine which developed about twenty-five horsepower and had three air-cooled cylinders at the rear extremity of the body which projected some little distance behind the lifting planes was a small stabilizing and weight-carrying plane the end portions of which on either side were capable of being moved up and down behind this plane fitted to the end of the body was a small vertical rudder the pilot sat in the body of the machine a little behind the engine and on a level with the rear extremities of his wings his method of control was extremely simple rising up between his knees was a metal cloche or lever this he shifted forward or backward to make his machine rise or fall the movement of the lever actuating the extremities of the rear stabilizing plane for maintaining the lateral stability of the monoplane he moved the same lever from side to side this action drew down or warped the rear portion of the supporting planes effecting the same action in fact as produced in the case of the right biplane when wishing to make a turn the pilot pushed from side to side a bar upon which his feet rested this moved the rudder at the rear of the body already as can be seen the control of an aeroplane in flight had become more or less standardized one lever was usually employed for elevating and lowering the machine and also for controlling lateral movements steering was effected as a rule by movements of the pilot's feet another machine representing these first types which it will be necessary to describe is the antoinette monoplane this machine had and has still many original features it was to begin with a very ambitiously designed machine it had very large and strongly built wings these were set at a dihedral angle so as to increase the machine's stability the engine developing sixty horsepower was fixed in the bow the body of the machine which was appreciably longer than that of the blériot monoplane ended in fixed horizontal and vertical planes or fins rather resembling the feathering of an arrow hinged horizontal planes at the extremity of the tail 
provided means for elevating or lowering the machine vertical rudders were also fitted the controlling mechanism was original on either side of the pilot as he sat well back in the body of the monoplane was a wheel these wheels he turned when he wished to rise or descend or correct the lateral stability of the monoplane by means of this wheel control which locked the planes in any desired position a very fine adjustment was possible but the manipulation of the wheels with which separate movements had to be made with each hand was declared by many airmen to be difficult to learn on the first of the antoinette machines it should be mentioned ailerons or balancing flaps were used to control lateral stability afterwards however wing warping was adopted and adhered to such were the first aeroplanes as seen at Rouen in the year nineteen o nine other more experimental machines there were two which did not figure prominently at the time but which were destined to play a prominent part in future work in this regard should be mentioned the r e p monoplane designed and built by m esnopeltrie and the breguet biplane designed built and flown by m louis breguet for the human factor growing skill of airmen feats of nineteen ten as compared with those of nineteen o nine cross-country flying what the aeroplanes which we have been describing could not do was to combat a wind no flight was essayed indeed unless weather conditions were quite favourable a notable exception must however be made in the favour of the antoinette monoplane this aircraft owing to its weight and stability and the skilful and daring handling of mr latham was on several occasions in nineteen o nine and notably at the blackpool flying meeting able to remain aloft in very high and gusty winds apart from the question of wind flying which was of course all-important there were grave structural drawbacks in connection with many of these early machines some were too light others too heavy save with those upon which the gnome engine was fitted there was almost constant engine trouble above all however the human factor entered into the question men were learning to fly apart from any consideration of the good or bad points of their machines they were invading a new element as one shrewd observer at this time remarked the men who fly now are like those who first ventured upon the sea in frail cockle shells they tremble at their own daring more might have been accomplished in nineteen o nine in fact had men possessed greater confidence take for example the attempts which were made at the ram meeting to win altitude prize to the amazement of spectators one pilot rose until he flew slightly more than five hundred feet high this feat was in nineteen o nine considered a marvellous one in nineteen eleven only two years later a man rose to an altitude of nearly two and a half miles the heights attained in nineteen o nine could indeed have been appreciably increased had men possessed the necessary 
confidence in themselves and in their machines to force them higher but in these pioneer days a height of a hundred and fifty feet or two hundred feet from the ground was considered quite an appreciable altitude nowadays when carrying out a long cross-country flight an airman will fly several thousand feet high thus it can be seen what definite progress has been made in this aspect of flying alone high flying has considerable importance the airman who does not soar high when going across country meets the worst of whatever wind is blowing it eddies from hilltops and around woods the higher he flies therefore the steadier the wind blows because it is unaffected by any inequalities of the ground this is why the great cross-country flyers invariably ascend to a considerable altitude in the year nineteen o nine it may truly be said men were really learning to fly their machines were crude and they were invading a new element therefore they made comparatively short flights and confined nearly all their operations to aerodromes where there was always a smooth place of descent below them should the failure of their engines compel a hasty landing but in nineteen ten a new and more daring spirit developed with growing confidence airmen soared higher and higher breezes no longer made them hasten to descend and with this new spirit of adventure came the desire for cross-country flying instead of monotonous circling round the aerodrome with the commencement of long flights across country from point to point came the first practical opportunity for applying the aeroplane to military reconnoitering work the first cross-country flights marked indeed a very definite stage in the development of the aeroplane and it was in nineteen ten that the possibilities of the flying machine in this regard were demonstrated on a convincing scale by such aerial contests as the flight from london to manchester and the circuit de lay in france the first taking place early in the flying season of nineteen ten and the latter towards its end two machines had by this time emerged as representing the best of their type one was the farman biplane with the invincible gnome motor the other was the bleriot monoplane now also equipped with the gnome so far as distinction can be made the farman machine stood for ease of manipulation and general airworthiness while the bleriot represented the development of a small portable high-speed machine it was on the farman biplane that m louis paul Han flew with one halt the one hundred and eighty-three miles aerial journey from london to manchester and mr graham white one of the joint authors of this book who also piloted a farman had the distinction of competing against him in what is now regarded as an historic contest in the circuit de lay in france leblanc the winner flew some four hundred miles on his bleriot monoplane passing over all sorts of country and finding his way accurately from point to point by means of his map and a special compass he made frequent landings without damaging his machine and demonstrated its reliability in a most convincing way one question naturally arises in any consideration of such flights as these seeing that they were so greatly superior to anything that had been done in nineteen o nine had the aeroplanes which these pilots used been improved to any remarkable extent in reply it is certainly accurate to say that they had not the gnome engines with which they were fitted had it is true been strengthened in small ways 
and perfected in the manufacture of certain delicate parts the result being an even greater reliability in running than had first been attained as regards the aeroplanes they were in essentials the same which had been flown in nineteen o nine their controlling mechanism was for instance unaltered their method of construction was practically the same although experience had taught manufacturers the need of strengthening certain parts landing devices had been slightly improved from the point of view of everyday wear although aeroplanes and engines had both been improved a little neither had been altered sufficiently to account for such a vast stride forward as was made in nineteen ten it was not to the machines indeed so much as to the men that this striking progress was due practice had begun to make perfect pilots now felt more comfortable when they were in the air they had growing confidence in their aeroplanes they had learned how to maintain stability when assailed by wind gusts thus they were ready to attempt far more ambitious flights End of first section